listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Hey, welcome to Barcode. Oh, oh, Chris, right? Hey, man, what's going on? Uh, Not much. How you been? Good, man. Staying busy. Hey, I got something new for you to try. Okay, what you got? It's called a Blue Monday. Pretty good. I think you're going to like it. Okay, what's in it? Uh, we use one and a half ounces of vodka, three quarter ounces of blue carousel, half ounce of triple sec, half ounce of vermouth, and orange for your taste. It's actually pretty good, man. You should try it. Oh, man, that's nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, no problem, man. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. You said you're into cybersecurity or something like that, right? That's right. Uh, well, you should uh, make your way down the other end of the bar. There's this guy down there. He's talking all kinds of stuff about uh, cybersecurities. All right, I'll go check it out. Thanks, man. All right, man. We'll see you next time. Welcome to Barcode. I'm your host, Chris Glandon. And with me today from Australia's Gold Coast is the legendary Troy Hunt. Inspiring cybersecurity leader, plural site infosec author and instructor, Microsoft regional director and MVP specializing in online security and development. He runs TroyHunt.com and is the creator of Have I Been Pwned? For those that don't know, is a tool that lets you know if your personal data has been compromised. I just read an article on Gizmodo. They named that number 83 in the top 100 websites that help shape the internet. So congrats. <laughs> Troy, thanks hey, for joining I me. I was, I was in front of Goatsy. That's good news, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that is good news. So thanks for joining me. It's, it's an honor to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. So we are certainly up against some challenging times right now. And we are constantly, as cybersecurity professionals, readjusting our standard workflows and almost a, a day-to-day strategy because you don't know what lies ahead. I'm curious to know what kind of professional challenges have you faced since COVID-19 started and what have you been doing to really overcome those challenges? Hey, that's a good question. I don't often get questions I haven't heard before. So that's, that's a really good one. Um, it's, it's kind of been fortuitous timing for me in many ways. I, I had a, a schedule and a cadence of travel, which, which wasn't great for my kids, wasn't great for me. Uh, so it, it, in many ways, like I, the last time I was away from this home, away from this bed was, I think it was the 15th of Feb. So, you know, that is bang on seven months today. So I have, I've not traveled at all in seven months. Now I traveled, I think it was 240 days in 2019. And for the two or three years before that, it was about 40 something percent of the year. So that's it. In one way, it's a massive difference for me. In, In other ways, it, it's been really uh, positive. I mean, it's not only f- for my for my lifestyle because I've I get a lot more exercise. I've spoken to neighbours I've never spoken to before. That's nice, but professionally as well, because I, I had the opportunity to have so much travel and sort of I guess build up a name for myself, going and doing stuff, meeting people, doing stuff in person, getting. Uh, getting opportunities, which I think it'd be hard to, to have without being in person. By the time we got to the point where it's like, look, we got to do everything remotely. Yeah. I was, I was pretty, pretty well set up. I got a nice new camera. I got some nice lights in the office and it's like, Oh, good to go. <laughs> so so nice. professionally, this has actually worked out, 
well for me. And I, I think we've now gone through this curve of organisations going, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Hold back on everything. Let's not do everything. And, and this is what it felt to me like in, I don't know, let's say March, April kind of time frame. And I feel like we got kind of through to May, June and all these companies were like, well, I guess we better just adjust, hadn't we? You know, like this is the new normal. Uh, business has to go on. And of course, there are many companies doing very, very well out of the whole thing. We're literally talking on Zoom. Uh, I think they're, I don't want to say they're happy about the pandemic, but I'm sure that their shareholders are happy about the outcome of the whole thing as well, right? So there are companies out there that are investing heavily and I'm, you know, seeing things sort of turn around, but from the new normal, I get to do all of this stuff without being jet lagged, which is good for me. The fact that you go and speak at conferences, I mean, you deliver exceptional keynotes and the expertise that you share, whether online or in person is always second to none, in my opinion. In in the face of COVID-19, you know, do you miss that human interaction with the cybersecurity community or do you feel like you have been able to increase the R&D within your own project space? Oh, look, don't get me wrong. There's definitely aspects of it I miss. Like I miss the social engagement, my, my social life. It, it's just different now. It's, to, to be honest, it's much more normal now. It's like I socialize with people who live around me instead of like I socialize with people in Oslo and London. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's what's different. I, I miss sort of seeing new sites and all that kind of stuff. But by the same token, I, I feel like I've done so much of it. Uh, and I spent half my teenage years living overseas as well. So I don't feel like I've, I've had any lack of international exposure. But now I'm, I'm actually quite comfortable with this. And for, for a whole bunch of other personal reasons as well, like I'm, I'm very happy just not going anywhere. And I, I don't know when I'm going to feel differently, to be honest. I, I honestly don't think that we're going to be able to travel internationally for another year. I think we're going to be, we're September 2020 now, for those of you listening to this in the future. I, th- I think it's going to be a September 2021 proposition or beyond. Uh, and maybe I'll feel differently then because it would have been like 18 months or something with, you know, no travel. My net feelings on the whole thing is, is net positive. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you have to stay positive. You have to play the cards you've been dealt and approach it in the perspective of a new opportunity. You know, now, since you aren't traveling as much as you were for big conferences and other on-site speaking engagements, how can our listeners stay informed with you and stay connected? You have social media, you have your weekly update, you know, where else can you point us to? Well, you know, there's, there's a heap of stuff online. I was actually just looking at my Pluralsight stuff, which you mentioned in the intro the other day. So there's, there's 47 <laughs> pre-recorded courses on Pluralsight still up there in the library. So if you really want to sit there and spend five and a half hours hearing about SQL injection, good on you. <laughs> you know, that's still up there. Uh, everything that I've re- uh, has been recorded talk-wise in, in the past, and I think pretty much everything was in-person stuff, is at troyhunt.com forward slash recorded dash talks. So that's all there. And then, of course, all the new stuff, uh, as you mentioned, that the weekly updates, so I do those every week. I'm still pretty active on Twitter. Mind you, I was watching that show last night on Netflix, the one about how we're all sort of really addicted to our social media and all that sort of stuff, and I felt kind of guilty as I sat there on my phone, like, <laughs> checking my tweets. So, yeah, still finding balance there, I guess. Then there are a whole bunch of other talks and workshops and things like that I'm doing, but I, I guess where I've found things have, have tended to differ a little bit is that when I... When I could travel, I would go and travel and I'd do user group talks and I'd do conferences and and things that had just like no remuneration or anything like that whatsoever. It's all just community effort because you got a lot out of it, right? Like you got interaction with people, you got to go and have beers with people, you got to meet people. And now I'm finding that, that those events are much fewer and further between. And if I do them, I'm just sitting here in a camera talking. 
So, so, and this sounds a little bit selfish, but then what, what's the return on it? You know, I, I don't really get much. It, it's not like when you're standing in front of an audience and you see the lights going on in people's eyes and you see people laughing and smiling and then you're shaking hands and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that had huge value of no monetary sense whatsoever. But now it's like if I do those events, what, what is in there? You know, I've already got all of this stuff online. So I've tended to just focus more on the things which are commercial engagements. Uh, and, and there's a lot of those now because, of course, like we said earlier, everyone's like, this is the new normal. So we've just got to adjust to the new normal. So, um, yeah, less of those, but this will change in the future as well. And I imagine that we'll, we'll probably start off by having more sort of local or, or interstate kind of events. So maybe people see me in Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne and places like that. And overseas, who knows? At least a year, I reckon. I'm optimistic that the situation will eventually improve in terms of travel and speaking opportunities. Although when you look at the economy and cybercrime, there's always been a link between the two. And with COVID, you have to assume we're on the path to another global recession. With that, I'm curious, do you see a cyber attack methodology shift yet? Or do you see that shift slowly evolving? Well, I think there's a, a few things there. And the, you know, the, the easy one is certainly in Australia, we're already in a recession. <laughs> We've had two quarters of negative growth. Unfortunately, we had a whole bunch of the country burned down over Christmas as well, which didn't help. And then we had this on the end of it. But it, inevitably, globally, yeah, there's, there's obviously massive impact on, on the economy. In terms of impact on, on security, I mean, it, every time there is any momentous event globally, and I use that term momentous pretty broadly, we see upticks and things like phishing focused around it. I, I mean, I think back to things like the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines, uh, MH, whatever, whatever. And we saw a bunch of phishing attacks designed to uh, exploit people's curiosity in the outcome of that. Um, now, whether it was that or whether it's pandemic, we're seeing phishing attacks, the, the likes of, uh, hey, uh, here's an attachment. Would you like to see who else in your organization is COVID positive? And because people are nosy bastards, they're like, yeah, 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 I'd like to see that. <laughs> Let me open the attachment. Now, that's a very simple example. Uh, think about other things that we really just didn't even have a name for before six months ago. Zoom bombing. I'd never heard the word Zoom bombing before six months ago. So that's fascinating as well. Uh, and then, of course, th this entirely remote workforce, almost entirely remote, depending on where you are, who has suddenly been forced into working in an environment which would have taken years of planning for most organisations and all sorts of services have been put on publicly facing network segments because that's the thing that people have access to and businesses are just grambling to stay, uh, to stay open and functional. If this had been planned in the best of times, we would have seen issues. But certainly now that it's all happening under duress, uh, yeah, yeah, that's creating a whole bunch of problems. I think that there's all these really interesting things that are very hard to measure too. Now, I'll give you a good example. So we had a period there where the kids had to work from home. And I just remember once like going into my son's bedroom, my son's 10 years old, he's remote learning. He's got his laptop there. All the other kids are there. And in one of the screens, there's a dad in the background having like some business phone call, just talking really loudly about the business deal. And I'm like, Mate, do you realize that you just, you're literally like disclosing your business deal to a room full of 10 year olds and whoever is listening in, yeah, just out of frame there. So I, I think it's like just lots of little interesting nuances like that. But also this is the kind of stuff that will become the new normal, right? Like we'll get used to this and we'll adapt and yeah, maybe they'll put the kids in their room in a desk or something like that instead of yeah, in the lounge room where dad's doing business deals. Exactly. Now, from an organizational standpoint, 
large organizations, small businesses, doesn't matter. How would you prepare those individuals and exemplify the need for enhanced privacy and data protection during these times? I think for the most part, all the things that we've always espoused as virtues around security and privacy are still relevant, just much more so. So, you know, when I think about things like data minimization, like how much, how much data do we have? Do we really need to have that? Do we need to have it in all these places? Do we need to retain it for this long? Uh, I wonder how many people are sitting there now remotely with access to large troves of data that previously would have only been accessible within the corporate boundaries. Um, and now, of course, those boundaries are digital, so data ends up in many places it didn't before. How much that data is actually needed? We see time and time again, and I'll give you a good example. The thing that I constantly lament is seeing data breaches with dates of birth. And I'll, I'll tweet and I'll say, like, this is crazy. Let's say hypothetically, and I don't have any evidence to suggest this is the case, but let's imagine it's CatForum, right? CatForum.com. Now, you can go to CatForum.com and when you register, it asks you for your date of birth. Now, if they have a data breach, you've got this piece of knowledge-based authentication, static knowledge-based authentication, sitting there for, let's say, a million people. And I'll tweet and I'll go, this is ridiculous. Why, do, you know, why is this necessary? And then I always hear people, and I'm sorry, they're usually American as well, they say, you need it because of COPPA, yeah, Child Online Protection Act. You have to ask whether they're 13 or not. And I'll say, well, like, why do you keep all the dates of birth? You know, why don't you just have a button and it says, I am 13. And then if you don't click that button, you don't get in. And then the funny thing is like time and time again, people say, because people could lie. <laughs> I'm like, well, do you know how many people are born on like the 1st of January, 1990? <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And then they go, well, no, you've actually got to enter the entire date of birth. Cause if you don't enter the entire date of birth, it's just too easy just to click the button. So, okay. Here's some sophisticated mathematics for you. Enter the date of birth. Is the total years greater than or equal to 18? Yes, let them in. No, don't let them in. Either way, discard the data. Like this is not a hard problem. Now, that's somewhat of a trite example, but we see time and time again in organisations just way too much data collected in the first place, held for too long, used for purposes it wasn't intended. And I reckon if nothing else, this is the time where we go, let's clean this up because now the attack surface is so much greater, right? Exactly. And it's the same concept when you're looking at uh, liquor sales or, or gun sales. You have the same protection or, or mechanism in place where, you, you know, it's a checkbox. So that's really all that's vetting you. Mm. And, that, and that's all you need. And, and the problem is, so there's this really good quote that someone gave me before I went and did the, the congressional testimony. I asked for feedback and, and someone gave me this quote, which I used. And they said, organizations look at our data as an asset and they fail to look at it as a liability. So companies are just going, let's siphon up all the data because the more data we have, the more we're able to uh, target you, market your products, sell your information somewhere else. But they never sort of go, well, what is the risk, not just to the individual, but even to the organization? That's a great point. Data is a liability. Let me ask you about Have I Been Pwned. How have you seen the landscape change since you launched the service? I think there are multiple things that have changed since December 2013 when it, it launched. And the, the first thing that came to mind is greater regulations around privacy. So, yeah, obviously GDPR is a big one. CCPA in California is a big one. I don't think much of the world really thinks about Australia, but we've had various laws <laughs> passed in Australia around mandatory disclosure and things like that as well. So, yeah, we, we've had that come into place. And I, I think what that's done is given people a greater awareness around 
personal data, and I think it's given them a greater sense of ownership. I don't think it's actually made any difference to data breaches, but I do think it's made people a lot more aware. Now, on the flip side, you know, when I launched it, there were about 155 million records. Of course, there's 10 point something billion today. So clearly there's been a lot of data breaches since then. And what I have seen in, in terms of trends is uh, the one I think that worries me the most is just the redistribution of data via aggregators. So, yeah, the, the, and, and aggregators I, I use as a pretty broad term. So aggregators could be anything from credential stuffing lists where our data just gets put into sometimes billion record plus username, password combinations, but also through to aggregators that then monetize our data at various levels of shadiness. And, and if I could just maybe give two levels of shadiness, sometimes it'll be spam lists that you can buy that have been collected from all sorts of different locations. I've, I'm quite sure a lot of them have actually come from data breaches because it's, hey, freely available information, right? All the way through to the lights of Experian. I was speaking with a, a reporter in South Africa yesterday because Experian had a data breach down there where they exposed tens of millions of, of records of South Africans. Now, they're a, they're a credit agency. They're legally allowed to hold that data and they're legally allowed to sell it to people. But what's happening is we're just getting these massive troves of, of data which then appear in breaches like this. So I, I think that's, that's something that especially concerns me because we just have no visibility over it, no control over it, and it operates quite legally. And, and the, the uneasy bit of it is, is that credit agencies do actually have a role to play as well, right? Like there, there is a legitimate purpose for understanding someone's serviceability if they want to go and get a loan. Um, so I don't know the answer to that. I just know that we have a lot more data out there than ever before. And just by virtue of, of those numbers, yeah, we're having more data breaches and more records in them. You recently announced Have I Been Pwned is set to go open source. Why the decision to open source it now? I guess if, if we scroll back a bit, the, the, the macro problem here is that I didn't expect this to be popular. <laughs> so, this is a really nice problem to have, right? Like I created this as a pet project in my spare time. And I, I created it not just to be a data reach service, but I created it because I wanted to play with Azure and, and Microsoft Cloud things. Like that was, it was equal parts priorities. And the thing did get popular and it got big. And there started to become a lot of dependencies on it. A lot of organizations you know, tied into their workflows, for example. Uh, obviously, a lot of consumers use it. There's a lot of uh, companies using the free domain search. Uh, governments use it. And all of that is like great. However, for one guy still running it, like literally this is Have I Been Pwned HQ, like right here. <laughs> this is all it is. Um, and of course, whilst I was traveling, it was this and my laptop. And that was it. So really, that that to me was concerning in terms of what's the succession plan. You know, like I go out, I can't even joke about it. I used to joke and say, if I go out there and get eaten by a shark, like what's the succession plan? And then for the first time in more than 60 years, a week ago, a guy went out there and got eaten by a shark. So it's like a, I know, but I feel bad, like making the, anyway, if I go out there and I get hit by a car, <laughs> I go out the other side, you know, what's the succession plan for that? So I was concerned about that. So early last year, things really, really spiked. So January last year, 18th of January, I remember where I was. <laughs> I was in an airport. Um, things got especially busy when I loaded this massive credential stuffing list. And to be honest, I was, I was not only concerned about the succession planning and sustainability because there was so much dependency on me, but I was worried about my own mental health. And I was worried that 
and I think I said at the time, it's like I didn't feel burned out, but I could see a point where I would be and I didn't want to get to that point. So I was, um, I was concerned about that and I went initially down an M&A path, a merger and acquisition path of trying to find a buyer for Have I Been Pwned? Because it's like, all right, let's just pick the whole thing up, go into a big company that's well-funded and that can you know, resource teams and things around it. And basically got to the point earlier this year where there was really one organisation it boiled down to that was a reasonable fit and then the wheels fell off that due to absolutely no fault of my own, just totally different change of business direction for them. So I got to the end of that and went, okay, well, that was a very expensive experience. Learned a lot, but expensive experience. Like, what, what do we do now? And I sat on it for a few months and then eventually uh, in, in August this year decided that, that, look, the right thing to do was, was to announce open sourcing it. And, you know, that, that in itself is actually a heap of work. Uh, it's, it's not like you just go, you know, okay, GitHub repository public and, you know, job done, go for it. So there's a huge amount involved in there. It's like everything from the licensing terms through to breaking the project down into manageable components that people can contribute to, through to considering what a project that's been run as a private repository with one guy in his spare time for seven years. How many API keys did I check into that thing? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I've got to go through because I'm human as well, just like everyone else. I've got to go through and figure out how to segment it. Uh, so I, I, a path forward is starting to emerge, but I'm, I'm having to be cautious not to put a time frame on it either because this is still something I do on my spare time. I, I want to see my kids. Uh, I want to go wakeboarding and go down to the beach, <laughs> things like that. And I don't want to be sort of forced into a position where I've got to fast track this thing either. So I'm proceeding gradually, but that, that is absolutely still the, the clear intention. Let's open source it. Give people the ability to, to contribute to it let it grow into something bigger and let there be a community who can help run it. Yeah. And, and that was going to be my next point is, is just asking the cybersecurity community and our listeners to help continue to grow and continue your vision because it's, it's helped so many people. You also recently partnered with NordVPN as a strategic mm. advisor. Would you mind sharing some information regarding this partnership and, and how significant your role will be? Yeah, yeah, good question. In fact, I, I rushed off a call with, uh, with my good mate, Scott Helm, who does a whole bunch of TLS stuff in the industry just before talking to you. And we were mostly talking about the Nord situation because there's, there's really, really fascinating aspects this whole thing at the moment. And, and I'll come back to those, but I guess that's sort of the, the, the big picture. So um, Nord is obviously a really well-known brand in terms of the, the VPN product they run. I think that the VPN industry in general, and Nord hasn't been immune to this, uh, has had trouble clearly articulating the value proposition of VPN and doing so in a fashion that's, that's uh, accurate, commensurate and not hyperbolic. Uh, and look, we've seen a whole bunch of organisations really go off the deep end in terms of making representations that, that weren't uh, true. I've, I've written about some of these in the past. I've seen you know, promotions for VPN providers, which have been shady operators and, hey, great, you've literally just trusted your traffic to the devil. <laughs> this, is, this is not a good outcome. So there are a bunch of things that, that attracted me to, to Nord. I mean, things like the fact that they have had uh, independent audits from PwC to make sure that they're not retaining logs. Um, in fact, when I announced the Nord piece, I embedded a, a story in there about a whole bunch of VPNs that, that uh, just got popped and and guess what? They had a whole bunch of logs in there, which is, of course, not what you want out of a VPN provider. They do have a, a massive collection of exit nodes around the world. They've got like really cool people. So one of the things that I've become 
increasingly aware of over the time is uh, in the industry is like, who are the people behind these services? Uh, one of the reasons I have really good relationships with people like uh, Cloudflare and 1Password is that I've gotten to know the people behind these organizations really well. And they're super, super cool folks. So this is what I'm finding with, with the Nord crew as well. Now what I'm finding interesting, and I'm literally writing something in this today, and it was while I was speaking to Scott too, is his, this is almost like a good conference talk, right? Like in a, in a world that is going secure by default in terms of encryption, where is the remaining value proposition for VPNs? Because we're having this chat and we're like, remember when we used to go to airports and every time we went to an airport, we're worried about the network and we'd turn on a VPN. How do we feel now that there's so much TLS <laughs> everywhere? And um, it's funny to look at how many sort of chinks we still have in the secure by default armor. So things like one of the reasons I was talking to Scott is he does this crawl every night of the, uh, of the top 1 million websites. He pulls back a whole bunch of stats on them. So one of the things I wanted from him today is like, how many websites are actually using HSTS? Well, it's about 11% of websites are using HSTS. So even if they 301 from HTTP to HTTPS, we've still got the first hop. And then of the ones that are using HSTS, how many are using preload? Well, apparently that's about 2.3%. So I said, all right, a very low single digit number of organizations are actually properly doing encryption from client to some other point of termination. Uh, and then we've got like 97.7% of organizations are just not doing it right. And then by pure happenstance, yesterday I got a, a, a Google alert for something related to have I been pwned. I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And I clicked the link and then it's like uh, Microsoft virus PC warning, you know, and it's like flashy lights. And I've literally got the audio again. This is the Microsoft security department. Call this number now. It's like, ah, crap. And it was all over HTTPS too. But HTTPS doesn't actually give us any assurance of who you're communicating to. Maybe you have a nice secure connection to the devil. So there's this whole other value proposition to discuss, which is around things like what is a good site versus a bad site? How do we filter them out? Chrome safe browsing gets some of it. Some ISPs get some of it. As soon as I turned on Nord and their, and their cyber drink, cyber, <laughs> their cybersec uh, effectively DNS black holing, it's like the thing went away. So, so there are a lot, of, um, a lot of other value propositions. In fact, Scott said something insightful today. He said, you know, as much as people are worried about the control that someone who sits in the middle of a connection has who's malicious, the control that someone who sits in the middle of the connection and is good has is actually really, really positive. So there's a lot of good upsides, but I think we've got to sort of put it in the right context so that the argument about, um, you know, you need this because otherwise your connection is encrypted, yeah, frankly, isn't quite right. We've got in the US, according to Firefox Telemetry, there's over 90% of all web traffic is encrypted. So that's not the problem. The, the problem are all the other gaps around that and then the trustworthiness of the site and a few other things too. So to be honest, so this is a bit of a fun challenge, right? How do we, how do we try and separate the hyperbole from the, the good, useful facts? And this is what I'm trying to do now. Hopefully I'll get it right in this blog post I'm writing. I'm sure you will. And I'll be looking forward to checking it out. Now, help me understand, you have your typical average VPN home consumer who is evaluating VPNs, right? How would you advise those users to verify that the VPN they are looking at or will be purchasing is legit and not snake oil? Well, it's, look, to be honest, it's really hard for your average consumer. Uh, like, how do you actually look at, you know, let's say one of these reviews and figure out, yeah, you go to one of these reviews and, and 
very often all these reviews are like affiliate links to every single other provider. And I'll tell you what, the number of reviews of certificate authorities I've seen, and here's all the best certificate authorities, and Let's Encrypt isn't on there because you can't get an affiliate link to Let's Encrypt. <laughs> it's like, how much do I trust this? So I'm really sympathetic to your, to your average user. And I, I think where, where Nord's carving out a bit of a niche for themselves is, is they're getting better brand recognition than most organizations. And, and frankly, they've done that by buying a lot of airtime as well. Now, fortunately, they're also a good company. <laughs> so, so they have that supporting them. But it's very difficult for consumers. And in the same way, it's difficult for consumers of, you know, what antivirus should you run? You know, what is the right antivirus product for you to run? So look, it's, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing for consumers at the moment. And I think the answer to this is a combination of things like TLSing as many things as we possibly can so that they just don't have to do anything, plus making sure that there are products like Nord, which are easily consumable, cost-effective, and, and, uh, and shouldn't get in the way of what it is that they're trying to do. Definitely. Because it can be complex and overwhelming for users that aren't familiar with the tech. So what do we all have to look forward to? Tell me what the state of cybersecurity will look like in 2030. Well, we're still going to have passwords. <laughs> like that's, this is normally the question, right? It's like, when's the password going to die? And I, like I started getting really involved in InfoSec probably about 10 years ago. And I just remember at the time that listening to podcasts and there are all of these, all of these projections about we won't have passwords in 10 years. The only thing I can say absolutely for sure now, and it doesn't take a psychic to do this, is to say that you will have more passwords in 10 years from now than what you will now. And part of the reason is, is that old passwords don't die. <laughs> like they're, they're still out there. You just get more and more services. So I, I think we're still going to have that challenge where we're still going to find that the human side of security is, is absolutely key. And I mean that in everything from social engineering through to how do we make security consumable? And I'll give you a really good example on the second point. 2FA, fantastic 2FA, MFA, two-step, whatever you want to call it. Having, say, a soft token as well, fantastic additional layer of security. Absolutely woeful user experience. It's terrible, honestly. And then, like, if someone's listening to this and you're like, well, I set it up all the time and it's fine, try doing it for your parents, right? And then try supporting your parents when they get a new phone and they've lost all their soft tokens. <laughs> it's just, like, it's just an absolute nightmare. You know, maybe stuff like U2F is part of the answer for it. I can see U2F, I mean, U2F is increasingly playing a role, say, in the enterprise where it's like everyone already has a key card. Plus, you're our captive audience. You work for us. We can make you do whatever we want you to do. But I just don't see good imminent solutions for the masses trying to sign into websites. I see lots of incremental things, you know, log on with Facebook. Eh, kind of solves some problems with it's other problems. Apple's making efforts around doing this. Well, it's kind of the same answer in some ways. But I just don't see anything, I just don't see any silver bullet on the horizon. Uh, and I see Have I Been Pwned getting much bigger <laughs> because there's like, there's no reason for it not to. That's true. Let's switch to IoT real quick. Organizations are faced with many challenges in terms of IoT security, from device visibility to applying security controls. What is your take on securing IoT? It's, it's extremely difficult because of, I, I think, competing forces. And, and what I mean by that is that the competing forces we have is that IoT is getting exceptionally cheap. 
and readily accessible to both consumers and enterprises. So I've got, I've been putting things like these little Shelly relays uh, literally in the wall behind light switches. That's small, same size as two Oreo cookies. You put it behind a switch in the, in the wall. And if we were to put it in US dollar terms, it's, it's what, like $16 or something for a relay. Now suddenly you've got an internet connected light. Fantastic. Now they do a pretty good job, but there are loads out there that are just super cheap, very poorly tested, very poorly supported. And then you get to this situation where you're saying, whether it be consumer or enterprise, how many people are equipped to update the firmware on their light bulbs in a regular cadence? <laughs> you know, I can, I get like, I use my mum and dad's examples. Like, can I imagine going to my mum and dad going, so have you updated the firmware on all the switches in the house lately? And they'd be like, what's firmware? You know, like, where do we even begin with that? Uh, but the competing forces here, are, it, it's not just the, the price, but it is, it is now organisations trying to put IoT into everything. And again, whether that be something for consumer land or enterprise land, because this is now a point of difference. My washing machine has IoT. I'm not sure why. I put it on the internet anyway because I was curious. But <laughs> it's like, what is the point of this thing? But when you look at the brochure, it is literally one of the headline elements. It's like, uh, washes your clothes, connects to the internet. I'm not sure what else you can really do with the washing machine now. Um, so we're trying to push this stuff very, very quickly, but all of our traditional concepts around everything from patching cadences through to uh, any sort of automated update through to any discrete device testing suddenly becomes a whole lot more difficult when we've got all of these little devices all over the place. I realized, in fact, as well as talking to Scott just before this call, I think I've still got the tab open here, but I looked at my pie hole, which is where all my DNS resolves. And by a massive margin, the busiest device on my network out of all of my PCs, my NAS, the smart TVs, all this sort of thing, the busiest thing is this tiny, tiny little device sitting on my garage door so I can open it remotely. Now, I don't know why it needs to query Shelly.cloud literally every one second, <laughs> but this is what it does. So it's, it's, it is a fascinating, fascinating time. <laughs> I don't think maybe that's the nicest thing I can say about it at the moment. And I'm conscious also like on the security guy and it's like, Hey, look at how much IOT I just put in my house. But um, I think there's probably another discussion about how to try and lock that down a little bit in the home. So pie hole, I need to look into that. I don't have that running. I do have some IOT here, but you know, to my knowledge, there's not many third party tools out there, at least on the consumer side that you can implement to be able to have that type of traffic visibility or alerting. This sort of brings us a bit full circle with Nord as well, because Pi-hole is a DNS resolver. So it's typically run on a Raspberry Pi at the, usually at the network layer inside your home network, you would set it up to resolve DNS uh, from the router through the Pi-hole. And then at the moment I've got block lists that have got 93,000 domains on them and, and they literally just black hole the DNS query. Uh, now that's also what, Nord does when you turn on the, the CyberSec feature. So, you know, I can't see my mum and dad running a pie hole in their house, but I can see them running something like a VPN on their device, and then it just automatically gets the benefit of it. But that doesn't necessarily tell you where all your queries are going. And even here, when I look at my pie hole, it's like, what is it doing with Shelly Cloud the whole time? What are you doing, Shelly? And of course, so the top permitted domain is api.shelly.cloud. The second permitted domain is a two-year domain when two is another set of IoT stuff. The third permitted domain is another Shelly domain. <laughs> it's like, actually, look at this. The fifth one's another two. Oh my God. What are these devices doing? The, the eighth one is a Nanoleaf domain. 
Oh, and the one before that is a huge, holy crap. It's like literally probably 70% of my top hit domains are all from IoT devices. Curious. Uh, curious. Yeah, something to look into. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I have one more question for you. Uh, since the name of this podcast is Barcode, if you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Cheers. Talk about questions I've never had before. Um, I think it. I think I'd do something on the beach, and I'd, I'd call the bar the Data Beach. How's that? Nice. I like it. And I, I, don't, I don't know what the. I, I would call the signature drink beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, Troy. Thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. Stay safe. Yeah. Cheers, man. Appreciate that. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.